New Zealand is struggling to reverse growing rates of sexually transmitted infections. The number of HIV diagnoses in the last year was the highest ever in this country, and over the past decade, cases of chlamydia have continued to rise. Insight asks why. One night, I was having a shower and my hair started falling out, and that kind of scared me being 21, 22 at the time. Oscar decided to go to his GP when he returned to Auckland from his holiday and a range of blood tests was ordered. I got home to find a message on the phone uh, saying, please give me a call urgently. And I called my doctor back and he said, what's your address and I'm coming over. To which at that point I started freaking out um, and started thinking the worst. The GP told Oscar that he was HIV positive. Later testing showed his partner was not infected. Oscar is adamant he always practice safe sex and use condoms. It wasn't a case of going out there and um, thrill-seeking, so to speak. It was very much that I, I still thought that I was doing the right thing. Oscar, who preferred to be known by a pseudonym, is among a growing number of gay and bisexual men who are HIV positive. Between 2010 and 2011, 95 gay men were confirmed as HIV positive out of a total of 150 people throughout New Zealand. That's a figure the executive director of the AIDS Foundation, Sean Robinson, describes as a resurging epidemic. Uh, unfortunately, the 2010-2011 year was the worst year ever for HIV diagnosis amongst gay and bisexual men in New Zealand. That's the worst year going back 30 years. At least 17 men and 18 women became HIV positive through heterosexual contact. After so many years of education and awareness raising, why should the infection rate be getting worse? The biggest factor is the fact that from about the mid-90s there have been effective treatments which prevent HIV turning into AIDS and of course AIDS uh, was a, a fatal disease that, that, and so people died. Um, so the result of that is several things. I mean, One, it's pure maths. There are more people living um, with HIV so therefore the, the risk, the chance of people passing that on to someone else is just greater. If you're on antiretroviral drugs you still remain infectious and can pass it on. It doesn't stop that aspect of the disease. Well that's a debatable point and it comes and goes. Certainly you're highly infectious in the first six weeks which is probably the time when you don't know you've got it. Also your viral load, your ability to infect other people, rises and falls throughout the time that you have HIV, which is the rest of your life. There are about 1,800 people living with HIV in New Zealand. But HIV is not the only sexually transmitted disease with infection rates in New Zealand that make for grim reading. Come on and have a seat. I'm Christine, one of the family planning nurses on today. What can I do for you? I'm just here for an STI check. Oh. Are you concerned about anything, or this is just routine? Um, there was one incident, but I think it should be okay. How long ago was that? About three to four weeks. Okay, it's good timing, certainly, if you want us to pick something up. Chlamydia was the country's most commonly reported STI last year, with tens of thousands of positive tests. The available data indicates an upward trend for the last decade. 
The Institute of Environmental Science and Research provides an annual surveillance report on sexually transmitted infections based on information gathered from sexual health clinics, family planning, youth health centres and testing laboratories. A public health physician at the Institute, Dr Carrie Sexton, sets out the latest figures. Well, our estimate, and it's an estimate only, is um, the current rate for 2010 was 748 per 100,000 population. Now, with a population of about 4.3 million, that's about 34,000 people diagnosed in 2010 with chlamydia. How does that compare to the previous year? It's higher. So all the things that we monitor for chlamydia are showing that chlamydia has been steadily increasing over the last 10 years. The chlamydia infections include 100 children of less than a year old who will most likely have contracted the disease from their mothers at birth. It's difficult to make direct comparisons with other countries because of differences in the way information is gathered, but it appears that New Zealand's rates per capita for chlamydia are double those of both Australia and the United Kingdom. The clinical director of Hamilton's Sexual Health Clinic, Dr Jane Morgan, has been involved in research comparing New Zealand's chlamydia infection rates with overseas countries. She says the nature of the illness makes it difficult to track. Chlamydia is largely an asymptomatic infection, which means that the cases that get reported and the cases that we count are only the cases that we've been able to detect through testing. So if you think that um, all of the people out there who are possibly infected if only a, um, a small number of those ever get tested, then um, that um, introduces a bias into how many cases are reported. So for a long time we've thought that, well, maybe that it's simply that we do more testing in New Zealand um, compared to Australia. The worrying trend over the last four or five years is that more and more of the tests that we do are positive. That That's certainly also been seen overseas. And perhaps what's different between um, New Zealand and some of the other settings is that we see a greater number of complications related to chlamydia. Um, so, for example, the pelvic infections, the pelvic inflammatory disease. And that's a real concern because women with um, pelvic inflammatory disease can go on to have ectopic pregnancies um, and later complications like infertility. Dr Morgan says a lot of different factors influence the rate of sexually transmitted infections. Younger women are more vulnerable to infection than older women, and poverty also plays a role. The longer someone is infected before getting treatment, the higher the likelihood of it being passed on to another person. She says the length of time someone has an infection is often dictated by whether an individual can afford or has access to health care. While chlamydia is on the rise, the Environmental Science and Research Institute's Dr Sexton says the trend in gonorrhea infections appears to be downward. Gonorrhea is showing a different pattern to chlamydia. It had been increasing since about 2000, but for the last four or five years we've actually seen a decrease. So it's been a 20% decrease in diagnoses of gonorrhea in the last four years. What about in actual numbers? What are, what are the numbers from this year to, compared to last year? So, yeah, so the gonorrhea rate for 2010, the estimated New Zealand rate, was 64 per 100,000. So that's about 2,800 people were diagnosed with gonorrhea last year. Under existing legislation, the only sexually transmitted infection that has to be officially notified is AIDS. But Dr Sexton is confident the Institute has enough information to track STIs and does not feel there's a need to make more illnesses notifiable. She says the Institute now has 40 out of 44 laboratories providing information voluntarily. 
She also points out that surveillance is a case of identifying trends rather than counting every case. One of the behavioural factors identified as having an influence is the use of the internet. That's particularly significant in the gay community, as the executive director of the AIDS Foundation, Sean Robinson, explains. There's a lot of internet uh, sexual connections going on. People can find sexual partners very quickly, very anonymously, very easily over the internet. And that's true of heterosexuals and gay men, but gay and bisexual men certainly use that that venue, that sort of uh, internet virtual venue, um, very frequently. And that means that the ability of HIV to spread geographically um, to different networks uh, has kind of multiplied exponentially. Dr Morgan believes messages coming from all forms of media have led to changes to what was once accepted as normal behaviour. I think we've been desensitised to um, what we are prepared to watch in the media and what we accept um, as normal sexual behaviour um, through television or through the internet. So to try and promote uh, more conservative behaviour um, doesn't necessarily sit with the music and the um, and the videos and um, you know et cetera et cetera that young people are being exposed to. So I think it's you know that we might feel that we're doing um, a reasonable job on this, but I think it needs more. It, it needs a louder message. While new setbacks to tackling the rates of sexually transmitted infections are continually emerging, there is also some good news. The AIDS Foundation says the use of condoms here is high by international standards. 70% of gay men use a condom most of the time. That compares with estimates of 50 to 60% in comparable countries such as Australia or the UK. But the AIDS Foundation says dealing with the disease now is a whole new ballgame compared with the 1990s. Sean Robinson believes treatment has taken the fear factor out of HIV and AIDS and complacency has crept in. But he says HIV infection and its associated drug treatment is not an easy option to live with. So for a number of people the drug treatments don't work. Um, people build up resistances or they just don't work for some people. It has some fairly significant side effects for some people and while those are improving you know, there are side effects to the, to the drugs. Um, the other thing is that there are a range of other kind of health risks that go along with HIV that the treatments don't address. So the risk of anal cancer is um, significantly higher for gay and bisexual men. Um, the risks of uh, weakening bones, the, the risks of early onset dementia are all things, um, heart disease, are all things that, that come with HIV. HIV infection rates among heterosexuals have dropped right down, with the higher figures of the past influenced by immigrants who contracted the disease overseas. We have a role in um, discussing with women that present for care the risks around sexually transmitted infections. Alison Eddy is a Christchurch-based midwifery advisor at the New Zealand College of Midwives. She says HIV, along with syphilis, are among the diseases for which tests are routinely offered as part of pregnancy care by midwives. That's primarily because we know that there can be significant consequences to the baby if these diseases aren't picked up and not appropriate treatment offered. We can prevent them, pretty much prevent them um, being transmitted to the baby. So that's part of routine care. The HIV um, has been in place now, the routine offer has been in place now for several years and I think that's been well implemented. I think it's been widely picked up. I think the chlamydia guidelines that came out in 2008 
weren't necessarily given the same prominence. I think they slipped under the radar to some point, to some degree. And I think, although no one's arguing that HIV is a significant issue and it needs to be part of the screening programme for pregnancy, I think that there's a significant amount of morbidity that's experienced by a lot of people in relation to chlamydia. And I'm not convinced that they, those chlamydia guidelines were given the same prominence or impetus, really, within the health sector. The numbers infected with syphilis are comparatively low, 119. But the Environmental Science and Research Institute speaks of an upward trend over the last five years. It also points out that current numbers may be an underestimate, as those infected may be going to GPs and hospitals, rather than the clinics that provide the institute with surveillance data. The president of the Sexual Health Society, Sunita Azaria, has carried out research into syphilis and echoes that recent figures may underestimate true numbers. Dr Azaria works at the Auckland Sexual Health Clinic and says up to 50% of people with infectious syphilis may not have symptoms and are unlikely to seek medical attention. She says New Zealand has no syphilis action plan unlike the UK, and that lack of a strategy also worries Dr Jane Morgan in her work in Hamilton. One of the challenges that we've had is, have, is trying to have an appropriate response to what appear to be outbreaks or clusters happening in one particular area, is that if we can have appropriate action and enhance surveillance of what's happening, then perhaps we can prevent further spread. The routine testing of pregnant women is one of the reasons the AIDS Foundation speaks of New Zealand as being one of the best nations in the world at coping with HIV. But with a record infection rate in the last year, there's a need to get the situation under control and find out why the prevention messages are not getting through. Oscar believes many young men are scared of the unknown. I actually find that the older generation have grown up with a large number of deaths due to HIV and AIDS. Then there is kind of a middle bracket where there is a slight understanding, but... They also understand that with the use of a condom, you can still have sex and you can still lead a relatively healthy, productive life. And then kind of talking to younger people as well, and you bring up, I bring up personally that I am HIV positive and they don't want to know anything about it. They don't want to know who I am. So in terms of knowing information, they kind of block themselves off from that. The AIDS Foundation is confident that targeted social media campaigns are having an impact, but they're hugely costly. The Foundation argues that the cost of campaigns has to be weighed against the cost of an HIV infection over a lifetime, estimated at about $1 million for an individual. The current annual cost to treat those people already infected is estimated at about $22 million a year. Those involved in sexual and reproductive health generally agree that it's not only the knowledge of what to do that's important, but convincing people to put that understanding into practical application, actually using a condom. The message to get it on from the AIDS Foundation is echoed by family planning. But as the chief executive, Jackie Edmonds, explains, the reasons for not using a condom may be different for the people who come to its clinics. The old problem is, remains alive and well. Young women struggle to negotiate condom use. And we still don't have you know, comprehensive sexuality education in schools. And we've got issues around alcohol, and not alcohol is often a factor. It's a very tough thing 
to have if we were 16 years old to be confident and able to negotiate condom use. And um, clearly people aren't doing it and they're not using them. That seems to suggest that young men or, or youngish men are reticent about using them. Has the message not got through to them either that they need to? That's a good point because it's actually a, a dual issue for young men and for young women in terms of use of condoms. And I guess it comes back to us, which sounds like a little bit of a broken record, but having comprehensive sexuality education. She says many young people don't consider the possibility of a sexual infection and describes them as often being gobsmacked when told of their test results. The College of Midwives spokesperson, Alison Eddy, also feels there's a need to alter behaviour, particularly among some men. One of the issues that midwives commonly face, and I think it's reflected in some of the public health surveillance data, is the reluctance of male partners to seek treatment. If a female partner is diagnosed in pregnancy, midwives commonly tell us that it's often a reluctance of men to seek treatment, and consequently women... Pregnant women often having unprotected sex because they are pregnant, so there's no reason for contraception, they are an at-risk group of reinfection if their partners are reluctant or refuse to seek treatment. Is there any sense of why men are reluctant to get treated? I think there's obviously a taboo or stigma around sexually transmitted infections. I think that is always going to be part of our society, even though we're we're a sort of an open and progressive society. I think there always is a, a stigma. It's not something you talk about in the tea room, is it, really, compared to talking about your, your cough or your cold. So I think that's something that we all need to be aware of. Dr Jane Morgan says in Hamilton at least five times as many women as men get tested, and she sees the same reluctance among young men to deal with the situation as the midwives. Increasingly, we're hearing from women that their partners don't believe that it's an issue for them, that men believe that they would know if they had an infection, they would know if they needed to take treatment. So that when we test a young woman, tell her that she's positive and tell her that she needs treatment, often it's a challenge to engage her partner in taking treatment as well. Dr Morgan says even when a sexually transmitted infection is causing pain or discomfort, she's astonished at how long men can put off seeing a doctor, hoping that it will just go away. She says the Rugby World Cup, with players staying on the field despite injuries, has reinforced that part of the male psyche that it's best to just battle on. But how can the situation be improved? Sexuality, sexual health, sex education, contraception, all attract some degree of controversy and embarrassment and often disdain. It's not an area of health that attracts public support or political attention. But the HIV and chlamydia statistics show more needs to be done. The College of Midwives raises a possibility that the primary health care model, now so central to health policy, might not be the right vehicle for tackling sexual health matters. The district health boards fund primary health organisations, or PHOs, where health care is normally provided by a GP or practice nurse. But Alison Eddy from the College of Midwives focuses on the fact that it's primarily younger people who use sexual health services. They don't feature highly in terms of health needs. I mean, obviously there's specifics around, you know, probably mental health and binge drinking and um, things that are specific around youth. But in terms of the health picture, we tend to focus on on the young, the babies and the children and the elderly or, or specific disease categories, people with cardiac disease or elective surgery needs. And I think... Youth can slip below the radar because they're generally perceived to be healthy and well and they, sure, they may have accidents and they may binge drink, but they don't generally feature on our radar. And I think that's p- perhaps partly the reason why this, is, this issue's not strongly taken up. 
I think the other thing is that the model of health care and primary care that's been strongly promoted and supported, the PHOs, is this, is this the model of health care that's the most appropriate for these for this age group? Is this where they seek health care? Is this the best way for us to be providing these sorts of services? Is the cost to GP consultations a barrier for people seeking care? The sector is bewildered at the lack of progress on the legislative front. The Public Health Act, which aims to update existing public health legislation, has been languishing since its first reading in 2007. It would replace the 1956 Health Act and the 1948 Tuberculosis Act, which are both outdated. Some changes to deal with the pandemic have been made through other legislation. At the moment, only AIDS, not HIV, or any other STI requires notification. The Public Health Act would require cases of chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV and syphilis to be notified, but not necessarily the individuals involved. Sean Robinson of the AIDS Foundation says New Zealanders may be a bit coy about sex, but getting the Public Health Act passed would provide a range of new options for countering infection rates. The current legislation was written before we even knew that HIV existed, so it's not a disease that is notifiable. And what is the implication of not having it notifiable? Well, it makes it that much harder to be clear what's going on. Uh, it also makes it very difficult for, say, the uh, public health physicians and officers of public health to actually deal with high-risk situations. Family planning is not keen on the concept of identifying individuals with an STI, but Jackie Edmonds says her organisation does support compulsory notification of test results from laboratories, as at the moment cooperation is voluntary, with no regulations to make sure the information is collected and supplied in a way that's consistent. We need for labs to report because mostly GPs are doing a huge amount of STI work, doing a lot of testing, and they're not being picked up in the current reporting unless the labs are voluntary reporting. Family planning clinics and sexual health clinics and student health and youth clinics have been reporting for some years, but we're really missing a big chunk if, DH, if labs aren't reporting. For Alison Eddy, it would only be worthwhile strengthening the notification requirements if that was accompanied by a strategy to deal with the problems identified. If you're going to collect it, unless you're prepared to do something about it, what's the point? And I think the, the information we can get from that to date is that we're seeing much higher rates in females. And I think is that because we've got a small number of men having sexual relations with a large number of women, or is it that men aren't seeking treatment? And I think it's probably the latter. And unless we're prepared to do something about that, about addressing it, what's the point in collecting the information. But unless there's some political will, really what's the point? Family planning would also like to see actual plans. Its chief executive, Jackie Edmonds, says the official sexual and reproductive health strategy has been neglected since 2001 without any development of the much-needed follow-up action plans. We really need to agree on a set of actions and a way forward in terms of our priorities for sexual and reproductive health. And so we're very keen for that to, to happen. But in the old the strategy, 2001, it's a long, 10 years, you know, it's a long, long time, and um, nothing has changed and nothing, no other further action plan has happened since then. But the Ministry of Health insists the focus of that strategy, with its emphasis on prevention and early diagnosis, is still the core tenet of programmes developed and run since then. The manager of chronic diseases, Manaya King, says a lot is being done. We are working with Māori and Pacific providers to, to build um, best practice models with them. We are doing evaluations of our current services in schools to um, make sure that what 
is being delivered in schools is effective and trying to take learnings from them to also broaden those out. We we have provided further sustainability funding to family planning, given that they, they have a, a growing workforce, so require um, that extra resource. We have a number of research projects in the pipeline at the moment. One is looking at best practice in terms of working with Rangatahi Māori, so that's a, a, national, a significant piece of research being run by House Sponsorship Council. We're also doing research in the area of HIV AIDS. We've got the evaluation for Get On. We will be looking at the follow-on from the chlamydia guidelines. So, I mean, we've got a range of things that we have funded. Family planning would like there to be more sexual and reproductive health education in schools. The Ministry of Health is to evaluate an interactive theatre programme that's been performed in 52 schools to see if it's changed behaviour. The programme, SexWise, presents real-life scenarios. Far out. Didn't use a condom. We were both completely wasted. It's pathetic. I was so scared. Thought I was pregnant. I didn't do anything about it for ages. They just freaked out. The Dunedin-based Theatre and Education Trust has developed the programme where actors take the role of teenagers experiencing different situations. Students can then ask the characters questions. It's an STI, sexually transmitted infection. I'd never heard of it either. I was really scared when I heard I had it. But it was easy to get rid of. They just gave me antibiotics. Many demands from the health sector come with a large bill attached. But family planning's Jackie Edmonds believes quite a lot could be done without spending a great deal. You know, we could actually do quite a lot without huge amounts of money. You know, If we actually agreed some key priority areas and worked together as organisations in the ministry, you know, we, we don't necessarily have to have millions of dollars. Um, I think you know, a huge step forward would be having some level of agreement across the sector around what is going to be our key you know, areas of, of action over the next you know, three to five years. Would be, you know, that would be a great step forward. While all involved in sexual health realise the challenge to get funding in these straitened times, the AIDS Foundation Sean Robinson says a lack of action in this area could prove a false economy in the end. The cost of not controlling infectious diseases will come back to bite any government, you know, from a purely financial point of view, if they don't invest today. Communicable diseases still account for over 20% of hospitalisations in New Zealand. We're still um, catching up from the last 150 years in New Zealand on public health, and um, sexual health, you know, is a very big part of that. Manaya King acknowledges the need for the Ministry to take more leadership. We know what we have and we know uh, what needs to be done. It is just a matter of better coordination, more integration and um, working more closely with other sectors who are also involved in this space. Um, so, um, you know, that, and that's the, that's, that is the, the challenge, is making sure that what we do do is um, effective within the resource that we have. And um, it's, a, it's a reality that um, everyone is aware of. Oscar would like another high-profile role model, such as the American basketball player Magic Johnson, who revealed he was HIV positive. Oscar believes such a role model would bring the issues home to the next generation in a non-threatening way. In the early 90s, there was the Magic Johnson in the world who said that he, he was living with HIV and it was someone to look up to. Um, and again, it, it sparked that conversation and people talked about it and there was a better understanding about it. 
In Hamilton, Jane Morgan is having similar thoughts, that an all-black urging young men to have a sexual health check or get tested for chlamydia would be a real plus. But for Jackie Edmonds, the question of who will lead the drive to develop action plans remains unanswered. It's going to take a much bigger picture look at why we've got these high rates and you know, more action around what we are going to do, and there isn't, there isn't there. And no sign of where that's going to come from? Not at this stage. I'm Philippa Tolley, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Gail Woods with technical production by William Saunders.